Welcome to The Lens, hosted by Catalysis, where we get a glimpse inside healthcare organizations that are transforming to a culture of improvement to deliver continually higher value outcomes for patients, staff, and communities. Visit createvalue.org slash the lens for more information about Catalysis. Welcome back to The Lens. I'm your host, Peter Mariahazi. Today, I'm joined by a team from Mount Sinai Morningside Hospital in New York City. Their organization is part of our Catalysis Healthcare Value Network and is committed to sharing learnings to improve patient care. Today, we have with us Lucy Xenophon, Chief Transformation Officer, Brian Radville, Incident Commander and CMO, and Art Gianelli, President. Thank you all so very much for taking time to talk with us and share what Mount Sinai Morningside has been learning in the midst of this pandemic. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. Brian, to set the stage for our listeners, can you talk about the current state of Mount Sinai Morningside? Sure. So um, Mount Sinai Morningside at this point has truly become a uh, a COVID-19 hospital. our first confirmed cases of COVID-19, we had two on uh, March 14th. And uh, over about four weeks, uh, we got up to about 270 uh, COVID-19 patients, which accounts for about 95% of our med surge census. Um, of that uh, number, it's been pretty stable, about 25 to 30% have been critical care. And of, those, uh, of that total, about 20% of those patients are on ventilators. So we've had to obviously rapidly change the way uh, we operate the hospital in order to manage uh, this kind of uh, new reality. Um, and to do that, um, very early on, we changed to uh, you know, an IMT, incident management team structure. So very consistent with the hospital incident command system, uh, I'm the incident commander. Um, and given this is obviously a pandemic, it make, made sense for the chief medical officer to, to, to be in that role. Um, and then we have different uh, sections with a planning section chief, uh, an, an operations section chief, and a logistics section chief. And that's a structure that we've uh, really held tightly to over the past several weeks. It's, um, it's definitely a change from how our hospital and most hospitals do their business to go from a um, very strict departmental structure uh, to one in which you have departments answering uh, to different uh, section chiefs based on the need. Um, but I think it's been actually really successful for us. And we've had a lot of support from our uh, emergency management uh, team uh, to kind of help guide us through the process. It sounds like you've really built a structure that, that allows you to know what's going on and use the incident commander, really get that information fed to you. Uh, Lucy, Art, anything you want to add on the current state? Yeah, this is hard. I mean, you know, I, I, it's important, I think, for, for our colleagues across the country to, to understand and to visualize just how, just the extent to which COVID has turned our hospital on its head. Uh, 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 Brian has been a, a terrific incident commander, and the structure that we put in place has allowed us to manage through a really rapid escalation in the number of, of, of COVID positive patients, the number of COVID positive patients who, who require critical care services. But what we have right now are floors that used to be med surge floors that are ICUs. 
that we have um, uh, procedural space that, that are being turned into ICUs. Uh, we've, we've turned uh, behavioral health units into temporary uh, med surge space for non-COVID patients. So the hospital has really been flipped on its head, turned inside out, whatever analogy you wanna, you wanna use. Uh, um, and that's gonna happen in each and every case throughout the country where there is a dramatic escalation in COVID positive patients. So our colleagues across the country really should be prepared for that level of transformation happening that quickly to their hospitals. I would say in terms of current state in addition, which um, to anyone listening, it may sound that all of these changes are accompanied potentially with chaos, but actually, um, there's been a lot of communication from the command center to leadership, to frontline and back as we make the moves. The moves have been collaborative with uh, frontline leadership. And so mostly the mood is calm and folks are working in a very professional, determined way to get the job done. So despite the rapidity of the transformation, um, it has not been uh, accompanied by uh, chaos or confusion. Agreed. Thank you, Lucy. That's great to hear. You know, I want to kind of go back. Art, you were talking about you know, the, the um, colleagues around the country and that they need to prepare for the search. What, what's some other specifics that you can give them advice on what they should do to prepare for the surge that, that they have come and that you're living through? Sure, I mean, there's a number of things that, that I think that our colleagues across the country need to be thinking about. Uh, so first of all, elective procedures and elective surgeries are gonna need to be canceled and they're gonna need to be canceled for an indefinite period of time. And we are, we are very cognizant of the, the impact that that has on the finances of, of, of hospitals, but nevertheless, those cancellations are gonna be essential in order to be able to create bed capacity to be able to handle the surge of COVID positive uh, patients. Um, that would be number one. Number two, it's very important to secure your channels of uh, supplies, all supplies, certainly your PPE, your ventilators uh, in, in particular, uh, but all of your supply channels are going to need to be secured because the, the reality is that ho hospitals across the nation are now doubling down on bringing in those supplies and, and warehousing them. So it's critically important that, that you, you have your supply channels locked in and you start thinking about where you can get PPE beyond your normal channels as the demand for your uh, personal protective equipment is gonna rise and rise significantly. And having a secure uh, flow of personal protective equipment is critical to ensuring both the safety and the, the calmness, as Lucy pointed out, of the staff. You know, because the staff is obviously very concerned that they're protected going into taking care of patients who are potentially infectious. Um, third, Hospitals really need to be thinking about their transfer capabilities. Uh, to the extent that a hospital is part of a larger system, do you have a transfer center? Is your transfer center going to be prepared to take the volume of patients and be able to move them around to hopefully be able to level load the distribution of patients across um, hospitals? Because it, it may be the case that one hospital in a particular area 
uh, gets a sudden influx of patients and other hospitals have capacity. So having a robust and effective and efficient transfer service is really critical to being able to manage the, the, the surge. Fourth, um, your ambulatory practices are going to transform during this time. Um, you're, you're not gonna have ambulatory, in-person ambulatory visits. Most of your visits are gonna be virtual. They're gonna be uh, uh, some form of telemedicine. Um, as we're learning across the country, uh, the, the COVID, the, the response to, to COVID-19 has really accelerated our adoption of, of telemedicine. Um, it's critical that you have that infrastructure and you leverage that infrastructure to stay in contact with your patients, both who have COVID and your regular patients who may not have COVID but have other underlying comorbidities that continue to need to be taken care of. Um, fifth, you're going to need surge space. You're going to need surge space, obviously, for your, for your inpatients. You're also going to need surge space for your emergency department. So think about where you can uh, locate additional patients who are coming in to your emergency department. Uh, is there space proximate to your emergency department? Do you need external tents? Um, what other resources might you need in order to be able to accommodate the demand for emergency services? Um, you know, six, you gotta, and Lucy mentioned this earlier, you really have to think about where you can create in negative pressure rooms. Uh, that's gonna be critical to, to, again, to taking care of uh, uh, COVID positive patients. So you have, to, you have to think about your hospital, think about your hospital in its entirety, think about where negative pressure rooms can be created, think about where inpatient services can be delivered that, that you normally don't deliver inpatient services, and where intensive care services. Next, I would, you, you wanna think about creating a labor pool uh, again, if you're part of a system, this is, this is uh, the, the value of being part of a system. You're going to need supplemental resources to, sup to, to, to help your staff, particularly your critical care staff. So it's very, very important that um, you identify staff that you can redeploy to provide that supplemental support to your, uh, uh, to your teams. And then the last thing that I would note is think about the data that you're going to want to have on a day-to-day -day basis. Think about the data that you're going to want to have um, on a week-to-week -week basis and start to work with your, your IT teams to be able to provide you with that data so that you can best manage the house, best anticipate where uh, uh, what's going to be happening down the line, and be able to adjust your operations based upon what the data are telling you. Thank you, Art. Brian, Lucy, anything you want to add to that as far as preparation? Sure. I think that most hospitals nowadays um, have started having daily huddles. Uh, we've been having daily safety huddle for a couple of years now and having every department very briefly report out in a 15 or 20 minute uh, on-site meeting, uh, what are the safety issues, what are the concerns that day? Um, I think if hospitals have been doing that or, or if they haven't, uh, they definitely need to start because I think that when you have that baseline culture of uh, communicating uh, every morning, escalating those issues, it's it's very easy to kind of, uh, and then just have a kind of COVID-19 focused uh, type of meeting. Um, I, I think that we all had to uh, very much learn about, you know, conference call etiquette, making sure people, you know, know how to star six and unmute themselves. Uh, that apparently is a major issue for well-educated people. 
Um, people putting the line on hold, it still baffles me that no one realizes what that does to the call. And, and you know, I say these things and I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious, but the reality is um, it is so important that you communicate. I, I don't believe in communication, I believe in over-communication. Um, but, you know, when these things happen, it really does sometimes derail the conversation. And because information decisions have to be made so quickly, um, those types of, you know, behaviors really need to be, uh, to be ingrained. And if you can do that, even starting now, you know, before you even have to um, uh, activate your hospitals and command system, um, you should be doing that. You should be getting that, that kind of cadence and that, and that culture uh, already ingrained in your staff. I, I think that's such a big idea, uh, such an important thing. Um, the other thing I would just add too, uh, in addition to several of the very specific tangible things that aren't mentioned for this particular pandemic, uh, is testing. I think you need to really figure out what are your testing capabilities. It was a game changer when our health system was able to start doing COVID-19 testing in-house. That's why there was such a delay in kind of realizing how, how badly hit we were because the tests were taking four or five days to come back. Once we started getting that testing, and then also as the pandemic started to escalate, we saw our numbers uh, increase dramatically again. From our first cases, uh, about 10 days later, we went from two cases to over 70, and um, it was dramatic. Thank you, Brian. Lucy, anything to add on preparation? Um, I think that thinking about your surge in terms of phases is very important. And we went back to the drawing board multiple times for phases, trying each time to try to preserve a spot for patients who are non-COVID because not everybody is COVID positive and trying to figure out by the um, level of illness how we could uh, make those plans. So those plans going forward were continually looked at, modified, changed and updated as our patient demographic changed and by the way, um, even though we're still in the midst of this, and as Brian said, have a very high percentage of our patients who are COVID positive, we're already starting to plan recovery, and the recovery starts to think about phases also. Where do you, where do you put patients who are COVID negative, who are in the ICU, who are COVID negative in a med search floor? So there's a lot of phased kind of planning. Thank you. It's clear that in this whole situation, communication and adaptability to this changing situation is key and, and looking ahead. So, Brian, what is the biggest challenge that you've faced in preparing for the surge? What's the, what, are the, what are the big takeaways that really people should focus on? So, I think once we started to really get into the, the thick of it, uh, for me, uh, the biggest challenge has been balancing the need to make staff feel safe that they're getting the correct personal protective equipment or PPE that they need uh, when they're on the front lines, but also balancing the need to try and ensure that we don't run out of supplies. Um, this has been a major concern across several uh, hospitals and health systems across the world, but it's still very difficult when the message is changing. Um, as an example, when we first had only a handful of patients under investigation, no confirmed positive patients, we were placing each one of them into negative pressure rooms and having uh, our providers wear a certain level of PPE. Then as things started to escalate, 
uh, we did not make negative pressure a mandate for patients unless there was an aerosol generating procedure situation. That was somewhat uh, by design, the initial negative pressure uh, mandate was out of an overabundance of caution. But what the staff see is, hmm, they were on negative pressure, now they're not, is that really safe? And the same thing goes to the N95 masks, which had been a source of a lot of concern and fear across the system. Um, staff wanted to wear them all the time. They felt that we were not necessarily uh, promoting that. And obviously there were concerns about supplies and what we can do to ensure that we don't run out, which would have been devastating. Um, so really trying to balance that and, and to, to make sure that, that you're messaging that the science hasn't changed, but the situation uh, may change. So as our uh, ED is a great example, emergency department became overwhelmed with COVID positive patients because of the environment, it's almost impossible to create social distancing. It's almost impossible to keep patients behind uh, closed doors. That became an endemic treatment area where we did change our message and we said, now we want everyone to wear N95 masks because of the environment, not because the science necessarily changed about how it is spread. That was a very, very difficult and emotional thing to message. Uh, I think uh, as, as part of the administration and leadership, that was very difficult. Um, I do believe that we've been supportive and staff have responded, but there was definitely uh, a week or two there where it was a source of a lot of um, frustration and, and high emotions um, by our staff, uh, specifically, like I said, our, our nursing staff and our physician staff. Thank you. Anything else, Ed? I would say that um, staffing has been a challenge and we have been fortunate enough to be connected to a system labor pool um, and we've also been able to um, create team-based nursing. So a non-critical care nurse can be paired with a staff nurse uh, to take care of patients who are now in non-traditional critical care beds that were previously med surge beds. So there's a lot of you know, staffing consideration to expanding uh, where you are placing patients in these non-traditional ways. And I think the third one, which was a little bit of a surprise, and I don't know why it should have been a surprise, but I guess we were all focusing on ventilators and we weren't necessarily focusing on oxygen. And so we created an entire unit, as Brian mentioned earlier, in a previous behavioral health space. And we thought, oh, this is fantastic. We can now have 45 beds and we did everything possible to stand up a unit in less than a week, and it was just, you know, seemed like, wow, success is here, until we realized that even, it was to be a non-COVID floor, but we realized that these patients, even though they were technically non-COVID patients, were very sick, and they all still needed oxygen, and there was no oxygen in the wall of a behavioral health unit, and so we were having to bring up oxygen canisters, which has its own you know, problems. Those very large canisters can only last for about four hours. They're heavy, they're fire risks. Um, so it, it brought a whole other series of issues and concerns that we had to work through. Thank you. Anything else, Ed? I, I would just add two things very quickly. One, um, again, there, there's, an, there's gonna be an insatiable need or ICU level beds. And, and you're gonna run into challenges where you have rooms that you would like to create as ICU beds, but um, you have a, a, 
uh, uh, opaque doors, doors you can't see through. So you have visibility issues. Lucy's going to talk about how we how we solved for that problem a little bit later on, but uh, it's a real challenge, and you have to factor that into your thinking and your planning and have a solution for that in order to be able to um, expand your ICU capacity. I would also add coordination, uh, you, you know, internal coordination. Uh, uh, obviously, you, you, you've created a series of teams and a, a structure very, very quickly uh, that needs to figure out how to work with each other. Uh, that's challenging. But then there's also the coordination between your hospital and other hospitals, if you're part of a system, the coordination between your hospital and the, the city and the state uh, and whatever other governing authorities uh, have a role. Um, coordination with the federal government uh, is, a, is, is a challenge. So there's multiple layers of coordination that are required in managing an incident of any nature, uh, certainly one as complicated as um, addressing a, a pandemic. And then last, uh, I, would, I would suggest one of the challenges that we faced is uh, personalities. Uh, and, not, and, and this isn't, a, it, it, it's not a bad thing. It's just that uh, uh, people react differently to the pressure of a crisis. Uh, and you have to sort of understand that. And you know, when you understand that, make your adjustments and accommodations in your leadership style and, 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 and approach uh, to be able to draw people of different personality types in people who respond differently to the pressure of a crisis, because you need everybody engaged, regardless of how they respond. And so that sort of emotional intelligence becomes increasingly important in the context of something like a pandemic. Thank you. That was very helpful information on planning for the surge of COVID-19 patients. We're going to take a break here and share more advice on supporting frontline staff, improvement team involvement, and valuable systems put in place in part two of this podcast. Thank you for listening. Visit createvalue.org slash the lens to learn more about how catalysis can inspire you to accelerate change in your organization.